Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And because that's true, let's open up our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. As you're finding Hebrews chapter 6, we're going to be back in verse 4. I want to say how great it is to have you, Pastor Nazmi and Albana and your sweet family here today. We're so thankful for you. We're grateful that you're here. Welcome to your family, to your kids, to America is what we call it here, America. We're glad you're here and um, we're just looking forward to fellowship with you guys. We are in the middle of, by the way, my name is Brad, if you're visiting with us for the first time, I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we are in a journey through this great, glorious letter of Hebrews. And last week, we picked back up after a summer break into some of the deepest theological waters in all of the Bible in Hebrews chapter 6. This is one of the famous warning passages in the Bible, and we, what we did last week was take a kind, of, a kind of survey, a sort of summary. Imagine going on a road trip with your family as a kid, and you drive by all the great landmarks in the United States. Maybe you drive by the Grand Canyon, and you're driving by an interstate, and Dad says, oh yeah, you know, beyond, beyond that ridge there, there's the Grand Canyon. And then you drive up to some place called South Dakota, and you by Mount Rushmore, and Dad keeps driving, and he says, you know, beyond that ridge there, that's Mount Rushmore. And then you, I don't know where you go down, maybe to the Arch in St. Louis, and you see it. Maybe you drive into New York City, and you kind of zoom by the Empire State Building. Or maybe up, up north in, in northern New York, uh, Niagara Falls, and you see that mist over there? That's Niagara Falls. And at some point, you might say, Dad, Dad, okay, let's get out, and let's look at the thing. Well, last week, all we did was just sort of drive by and give a kind of summary of the purpose of the warning passages in the Bible. And here's a quick, just quick review. The, the dominant views of why these passages exist in the Bible can be summarized in three different views. One, some people think that it means that Christians, genuine Christians, can lose their salvation. And that these warnings are warnings to people to not lose their salvation. I disagree with that view. I went over it last week. Reasons why. I don't think that holds with the balance of the rest of the Bible. I think that a person who's truly born again will necessarily persevere into the end because their salvation is not theirs to lose. It wasn't given to them, and nothing can snatch them from Jesus' hand. The second view, which I would be more inclined to agree with, but I think goes a little bit too short, doesn't say enough, would be that, this, that it's not possible for a Christian to, to lose their salvation, yes and amen, but that these verses are addressing people who are almost Christians. They're not quite there. It's a, it's, a, it's a rebuke of the people who might seem to be Christians but aren't truly Christians. And so salvation is not possible to lose, and so this is not really addressed to Christians. And although I agree in part with that view that it's not possible for a Christian to lose their salvation, I think a third view is a better view, and it is that these warning passages... Although a Christian, a true believer, can never lose their salvation, that these warnings are real and they are part of God's work. They're means of grace. They're ways that God actually brings about but what he guarantees to bring you to, which is all the way home to salvation. And so these warnings 
are not something that we can write ourselves out of. They shouldn't cause us undue fear as if we can lose something. And we do not have the ability to write ourselves out of them. But every Christian must put themselves underneath the force and the weight and the warning of these passages. I think that's the correct view. And so we're going to get out. We're going to stop at this particular passage. We just summarized it last week, and we're going to look at it. Now, I have nothing novel to say today. We're just going to put ourselves underneath the weight of this passage. I think of Paul's words in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. He says that the Word of God is at work in you believers. And I pray that the, the work that would be done today by the Spirit would be the work of the Word. Now, here's an outline. I want to give it to you up front. We're going to read verses 4 through 12, and then we're going to work back through it. Here's just a three-part outline for you nervous note-takers. Here it is, all up front at once. First is warning. That's verses 4 through 6. Second is an illustration of that warning. That's verses 7 through 8. And then he ends the writer with an encouragement. That's verses 9 through 12. Let me read the text, and then we'll work our way through it. Now, I really want you to pay attention right now. Uh, because this is the best part of the sermon. The reading of God's word is the best part of the sermon. It's the only part that is guaranteed to be infallible and inerrant and authoritative. So listen, please, to God's word as I read it. Hebrews chapter 6. For it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted in the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to the, have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Amen. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for this morning, for this text, for arranging our lives to be under this word on this day, in this moment. Thank you for Pastor Nazmi and Albana and their family and their work. Thank you for their sweet church, their dear church. We pray blessings upon them this Lord's day, and we pray that you would help us to hear your word. For believers... In this room, may you fortify and strengthen us. May this equip us to serve you. And may any unbelievers that are present, may you use this word to 
cause them to pass from death to life. Would you be glorified because of our time together this morning? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. First, I want us to look at this warning, verses 4 through 6, and we're just going to work through this text, and I want us to just stare at the glory of this word from the writer of Hebrews. The first thing he says is that it's an impossibility in the case of those. So who are those? I I think I made the argument last week that I think who is in view here is that this is a real word to real believers. But much ink has been spilt on who the audience is in the warning passages in Hebrews. And so while I want to say clearly that I made the case last week and I want to make it again that I believe that who the writer is primarily addressing here is believers... That's not to say that the Holy Spirit cannot and does not use this in the lives of unbelievers. So certainly there would have been unbelievers in the church, in the the audience of the letter of Hebrews that maybe thought they were believers, that the Lord would use to cause this to be the means by which they were brought to faith. And certainly that may be the case today. So I guess the point that I'm trying to make is nobody is outside of the purview of this word. In fact, I think on some level, all of the Bible applies to all people on some level. And so the point that he's making here is that there is an impossibility. And he's going to list five descriptions. And what's impossible? What's in view of, of what is the thing that is impossible? And the impossibility is that if a person, if you skip down to verse 6, that if they have fallen away, that they cannot be restored again to repentance. So there's this impossible thing that's going on here that the writer of Hebrews is wanting to warn them about. And he starts off in verse 4 by noting this thing that's impossible. And then he gives five descriptions in the rest of verse 4 and 5 of what this, this person who's done this impossible thing would look like. And he gives us five lists. Let's go through this. It's impossible in the case of those, number one, who have once been enlightened. I think this is language that we see all throughout the New Testament. To be enlightened is to have the glory of the gospel shine on you. This is what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. This is how, and I think what this verse, this word enlightened is another way of speaking of true salvation. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So I think the writer of Hebrews is just using the word enlightenment to speak of the work of God in bringing a person to conversion. You did not see, but now you do see. You've been enlightened. I think that's speaking of a Christian. They've once been enlightened. Second description, who have tasted the heavenly gift. What does that mean? I think another way of saying this is that this is describing a person who has known the sweetness of forgiveness and grace, who is, who's had a sense that they were guilty before the Lord, and they, they understand, they hear the gospel, their mind is enlightened, and it enables them to taste reconciliation. There's this sweet grace that a person receives in the, just the taste buds of their spirit when they know forgiveness. And this tasting is a real tasting, and I think it speaks to real salvation because this word tasting here is the same word that the writer uses for Jesus tasting death 
all the way, for us back in Hebrews chapter 2. So Jesus really tasted death for us. And I think the description here is of a person who's really tasted the heavenly gift of the sweetness of forgiveness and grace. The third description, not only have they been enlightened, not only have they tasted the heavenly gift, they have shared in the Holy Spirit. They're, they've become partakers. They're participants. They, they, they know what it is to be part of the family of God. They have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. In fact, I would say maybe that the most primary and common description of a believer in the New Testament is that the Holy Spirit lives in you. Listen to Romans chapter 8. And you know, eventually in every sermon, Romans chapter 8, it seems like it comes up. We're getting it out of the way early here. Romans chapter 8, listen to this description of what it means to be a believer in Paul's glorious chapter. Romans chapter 9, he says, Romans 8 verse 9, he says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. So this is the primary description of a Christian in the New Testament, that the Spirit dwells in you and you're united to Christ. He goes on to say, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So by the way, just to pause there, if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. Okay, maybe you came, and I, and I have great thankfulness for the... Uh, I don't know if some of you may not know this, but I came to faith in Pentecostal charismatic streams of the church uh, some 30-something years ago, 1989. I was a senior in high school. My older brother shared the gospel with me, took me to a Pentecostal church in my hometown. I'm very thankful for that background. I'm very grateful for the, the zest and the earnestness of, of my brothers and sisters in that stream. But one of the things that I think they wrongly believe that, that, that somehow the Holy Spirit in full measure, is something that you must grasp for after conversion and after salvation. And I think that's a wrong understanding of the work of the Spirit in the life of a believer. I think when, you, I think when the New Testament uses the phrase to be baptized in the Spirit, that's another way of saying the new birth. The Spirit resides in new believers. You are dead, and now you're alive. Because the Spirit resides in you, the Spirit of Christ is in you, and He has joined you or united you to Christ. You're His, and He is yours. Okay, theological rabbit horse aside, done, back to the main point. Verse 10, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So verse 11 is, is glorious. He's basically saying, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus is in you, which he is if you're a Christian, then he's saying something will definitely happen in the future. You will be raised to new eternal life forever just as Jesus was raised. So just, just how Jesus got up from the grave physically, because the spirit lives in you, that's a guarantee of your future and final resurrection resurrection in him. That's going to happen, no matter what, if you're a Christian. Verse 14, then let's skip down to that just a little bit more, but Paul's theology of the Spirit. He says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption, the sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Okay, we'll stop there. The point I'm making is that to share in the Holy Spirit I think back in Hebrews chapter four, chapter 6, verse 4, is just another way to describe Christians. 
And he goes on to say, not only have you shared in the Holy Spirit, verse 5, you've tasted the goodness of the Word of God. I think it's another way, just another expression similar to tasting the heavenly gift. We've experienced the grace and the benefits of God's way and wisdom. I think this is a way of describing the Christian life. You understand your heart's been awakened. Your, your mind has been illumined to the fact that God is good and that he is the only way and that life in him is good. And then the fifth description, he says there, second part of verse 5, you've tasted not only the goodness of the word of God, but the powers of the age to come. Now this is, I just was thinking about this, even just this morning, again, just what is that speaking of, the powers of the age to come, not only that heaven is yours and that you're going there, that eternity is yours, but he's saying that you've tasted a little bit of that here now, so that reconciliation, forgiveness, that the Christian life here in our salvation during our remaining time after we come to faith is to be like a little bit of a, of a, a deposit, a little bit of an outpost, a little bit of a drop of heaven. And think about what this implica- the implications this has about what church life should be like. So that, so that, think about this, that life together in a local church that believes the gospel should be like an appetizer of heaven, that we should taste the powers of the age to come, which is eternity, heaven, the new heavens and the new earth after Jesus' return, that we should get a little taste of that even now. That's what, that's what life in the local church should be like. That has all sorts of implications about how we should love each other and bear with one another and treat one another. That Crosspoint thing about this, that Crosspoint should be like a little striving outpost of heaven, and so should every other local church. It's not perfect, of course, we're going somewhere, but goodness, that's a sweet description of a local church, and he's saying that, he's talking about people who've tasted that, and so I think on the balance, you know, much ink has been spilled on differing views on this. Some people think that these descriptions, these, these five descriptions, once enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the word of God, and the powers of the age to come. Some people think, and they're really solid people, think that they're not quite describing a Christian, somebody that's sort of been on the edge of the Christian community, somebody that's kind of dabbled, somebody that's kind of put their toe in a little bit, but hasn't truly experienced a new birth. Maybe, I guess that's possible. But I think on the balance, these are descriptions of a person who, who, who the writer intends us to realize is a believer and to whom this warning is actually meant to keep them in the faith. It's meant to be a warning sign to cause them to slow down on the treacherous road of sanctification. And so he uses these five descriptions and then he says, and then, verse 6, and then have fallen away. More, more on that phrase in just a second. And then have fallen away. This is the only, this is interesting. This is the only time in the New Testament that this phrase is used by any of the New Testament writers. Fallen away. They have fallen away from the Lord. And what's the impossibility? It's the rest of verse 6. To restore them. These are severe words. 
Think about just the weight. Again, let's not just drive by this doctrine. Let's actually stop, get out of the car, and stare at it and put ourselves underneath the weight. It's like time under tension. How do you grow? How do you get stronger? Not just by looking at the weights, but by picking them up and letting the tension strengthen your muscles. Let your, put your heart and your mind and your life under the tension and the weight of this verse. See, and then they have fallen away. And look what's impossible. The second part of verse 6, to restore them again to repentance. Why is it impossible? Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So what is the author of Hebrews saying here? He's saying that if a believer, after having experienced all these marks of conversion and salvation, then were to walk away from the Lord, it would be impossible for them to be renewed to repentance. Now, let's stop there. What's impossible? Is it, impo- is it impossible because somehow the Lord couldn't restore them? No, It's because the writer of Hebrews knows the human heart. And if a person rejects that sweet goodness of gospel grace, then they will never want to actually go back. So the impossibility doesn't lie on the Lord's side. It lies on the human side. And he's saying it would be impossible to restore them again to repentance because it's as if they are re crucifying Jesus on the cross, which is an impossibility. You can't do that again. Crucifixion in the ancient world was the ultimate expression of shame. And what the writer is saying here is that that would be the ultimate expression of of shame or condemnation or neglect to say that that would have to happen again for this person to come back to the Lord. So the impossibility here is not that the Lord can't override, can't do what he wants, but that the human heart would be so calloused. And that repentance is a gift, and we can't just decide. We can't just decide to walk away from the Lord for a while and then come back on our own sweet terms. But he's saying it's impossible to restore that person again to repentance. And let's think just briefly before we go into the illustration about what it is to fall away. Because I want us to think in two categories of falling away. And, and I think the most obvious category that we think of is a kind of overt, drastic, dramatic falling away. We see, we see examples of that maybe in, you know, in the world, even in our own church, or people that we know that seem to be public Christians, and they've sort of you know, drastically fallen away in a dramatic way. But I think what we need to be also very aware of is, is a second, more subtle version of falling away. It's, it's more acceptable. It's more respectable. It's a kind of slow drift. It's like a slow being caught in the riptide of this world and being dragged out in a slow enough way that you, you can't really put your finger on it and you can't say, oh, this, this is what's happening in this person's life. And because we live in such an independent world and nobody can judge us, you know, I'm my own person, we, we just kind of see a person that seems to have been 
all fired up for the things of the Lord, just slowly but surely over, not days, not weeks, not months, but years, slowly lose their passion and fire for the Lord. And eventually, they're far, they're far on the edge of the Christian community. And eventually, they've become kind of their own, their own sort of island. And, 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 and they're just on their own. The person who started out hot is now cold. But they still confess the Lord. They still might give lip service to belief in Jesus, but their heart is a million miles away. And it's very difficult. It's very difficult in our culture to put our finger on something and say, oh, well, that person has fallen away. Friends, this is why, and just another aside, but I think this is a clear implication of this text. This is why we put such an emphasis on meaningful membership in the local church, that people know your name. Look, I want to see a lot of people come to Jesus, and I, and I love to see a full sanctuary, and I want to grow. I do want to grow. I, 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 want, I, I want more people to come, but not at the expense of meaningful membership in the local church. Because then what can happen is you can just create a culture where it's easy to deceive yourself and think you're right with God just by occasionally attending a Christian service, occasionally hearing the gospel, and never being known by people, never having to explain your understanding of conversion or your understanding of the gospel. And what happens a lot of times is people actually get reinforced in their lostness rather than, than proved and, and brought, brought out and, and discipled into true conversion. And so that's why we think, although there's no verse in the Bible that says you must join a church, we think it's a clear implication in the New Testament. The New Testament is written to to, to churches, to people. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18, we won't take the time to read it, but Jesus gives us this, this clear instruction about how we're to keep one another from falling away. He says that if there's this overt sin within a community, within a person's life, that you're to go to that person and you're to confront them. And if they resist, they don't repent, you're to take two or three witnesses and you're to humbly ask them, what's going on in your life, brother? What's happening? What's going on, sister? And if they resist you, you're to tell it to the church. And if they resist even the church and they seem to be walking away from the Lord, that the whole church is to put them out, to treat them, listen to this, to treat them as a tax collector and a Gentile, which is a, a, a New Testament Bible way of saying, put them out of the believing covenant community. This is Jesus talking now. Now, just follow the logic. If there's a community of faith to be put out of, in a formal sort of way, which is what Jesus is saying, is the end of dealing with a person who's entrenched in their sin. If there's something to be put out of, well, then clearly there's something to be put into, 
which is the local church. And I think implicit in that is meaningful membership. Friends, here's my point. You must be known. Part of the means of grace is not just this warning passage that you read, but actual, real, authentic community with other Christians who know your life, who miss you when you're gone, and who have some measure of knowledge of who you are and how you're doing with the Lord. None of us are strong enough to do this on our own. So here's just a word. Please hear my heart on this. If, if you've been coming to this church for a long time and you're not a member, nobody knows you, that's not good for your soul. And if you're in the military, and, and I know, gosh, that, that life is hard. I did, that, we, I did that. And you bounce around, you know, every few months. Man, even if you're training, to do your best to the next post that you go to. Find a Bible-leaving church. And even if you're only there for two years, get known and know. And, and go to a church that preaches the Bible, that exalts Jesus, that practices meaningful membership. It's part of the way. It's part of the way that God is part of the ordinary unspectacular means that God uses to preserve a soul. Okay, but here's the deal. In America, we think that spirituality is awesome services with cool, hip-looking people singing great songs and a relevant sermon. That's not the means of grace that God will use to make you stay in the Lord. He uses church life, regular people, Bible reading, community with ordinary people to be the means of grace that make you go and endure all the way to the end. And that's the point of Hebrews. Living together in this way, ordinary ways, unspectacular ways, having to deal with people who aren't cool or hip or sexy, having to endure with it is part of God's enduring grace. I'm on a soapbox anyway. You know, okay, here we go. All right. No, 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 that wasn't worth it. <laughs> Be aware of the subtle falling away that we are all prone to. And because we're just Americans and, you know, we're independent, nobody's the boss of me. And, and, it's, and we've created a culture where we can just be critical of everything, whether it's politics or local government or local spiritual authority or local school boards or teachers or policies. We've just become a culture of crap couch critics. And it's built in us a kind of dependence on our own foolish expertise which makes us feel like we know what we're talking about and most of us don't. We need the help of other people. And we are all prone, if we live distant lives on the edge, to fall away subtly. And because we're also allergic to legalism, we're scared to actually say to a person, hey, where you been? Why haven't you been in church? Why don't you come back? Or you think that maybe the pastor should do it. Friends, it's the job of the local church. It's your duty. We have to, part of God's grace is to give us one another to keep us from this slow, subtle drift. That's what falling away is. And he uses this word in life in a local church to guard us from that. And so we actually need each other and we need these type of verses 
to actually bring about, this is necessary, to bring about the end that God has guaranteed. The end that God has decreed is fastened to the means that God has ordained. And the means that God has ordained is that real Christians put themselves under the weight and the warning of this verse and give themselves to community so that they would not fit the description of this verse. Now he gives an illustration, verses 7 and 8. So he's given us the warning, and now he says, this is, let me just give you an agricultural analogy. He says, for land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. I think that's a description of the Christian. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So he's just giving us an agricultural illustration of what he's talking about in verses 4 through 6. Verse 7, he's, he's, he's comparing the human heart to, to a field. And he's saying it's soil. And soil that drinks in the rain, that the seed bears fruit, bears a crop. That's a Christian. But the one that does not ultimately bear fruit it is not a believer, and its end is to be burned. I think this is, this is exactly what Jesus is saying in the parable of the, of the sowers. Let me just read it to you, the parable of the four soils. Uh, Mark chapter 4, it's also in Matthew chapter 13, but I just want to put this picture in your mind. Verse 1 of Mark 4, let me read it quickly. He began to teach beside the sea. A very large crowd gathered about him, so they got into a boat and sat in it by the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower, it's a person throwing out seed, went out to sow. And he sowed. Some seed fell along the path. He's going to describe four soils here. Some seed fell along the path. That's number one. And the birds came and devoured it. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seed fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And in verse 13, he, he gives further explanation of what he means there. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all parables? The sower sows the word. It's the word of the gospel. And these are the ones along the path. The word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes, takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on the rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on the account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns, they are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those who were sown on the good soil, and this is what's described in verse 8 of Hebrews 6, the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. 
Friends, I think this, this, this parable that Jesus offers is a, is a further explanation of what's going on in Hebrews 6, verses 7 and 8. I think examples 1, 2, and 3, the path, the ones that were choked out by thorns and thistles, the cares of this world, the ones that were choked out by the deceitfulness of riches, those first three soils, are not true believers. But they seem to be, especially examples two and three, they maybe seem to be Christians for a while, but they did not endure. But the last is verse eight, it, or verse seven, it bears fruit. It bears fruit in their lives. For who its sake it is cultivated, it receives a blessing from God. This is what the human heart does when it receives the gospel. Just a, a brief exhortation before we conclude in verses 9 through 12. I think this is a, a secondary but important implication is that the Christian life, salvation, is not something that exists primarily for ourselves. Uh, an exhortation embedded in this is that some of us should be further along. We should be bearing more fruit. We should read this and say, gosh, I, I need to produce more of a crop. I need to be more fruitful with my life and let this, let this warning spur me along to produce the fruit in keeping with my repentance. Let this be a warning that I need to get off my duff and serve. And I should be the type of person that other people should go to for help. I should be dependable. I should be the type of person by now that is helping other people follow Jesus. I don't exist for myself. I exist to bear fruit for whose sake it is cultivated, which is others that the Lord is drawing to himself. And they receive the joy of being used by God. And then we end on this encouragement, verses 9 through 12. I love it. It's kind of a warning. It's a rebuke. It's like the halftime speech and you're down. The football coach is angry. Come on, what are you doing out there? Everybody grabbing, nobody tackling. You know what's going on? And then before they go back out to the second half, he says, but look, I know who you are. Come on. This is not, you guys are better than this. And in verse 9, he says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. Verse 11, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not become sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. I think the logic is clear of verses 9 through 12. I think it's rather simple and straightforward. He has warned the Christians, and this warning is meant to be really felt by real Christians to be a real means of preserving and prodding grace in the life of a Christian. So the logic is clear. This warning is for Christians. And he uses it to spur them on to better things. And what are those better things? To be earnest, to be fruitful, to have more assurance, to trust in Jesus more, to not be sluggish, and to imitate the examples of the faith of the people around them that have gone before. That's the Christian life. So in conclusion, when we read a passage like this, I think we're at a critical juncture. I think there are two possible responses. 
One would be condemnation. We would think, well, look, there's no hope for me. You read that description and you say, I've, I've done these things and I've fallen away. And, and how can I be restored to repentance? And it leads you into despair and further weakness. That's one option, condemnation. The other option is conviction. It's the Lord treating you as a, as a son or a daughter. If you feel this conviction, if you feel this warning, friends, that's a good sign. Let the conviction of the Lord lead you to repentance, lead you to grace, lead you to confession, lead you to renewal, lead you to refreshing, and lead you to strength. May the response of everybody in this room not be that this verse would be to your condemnation. The good news of the gospel is not that there's no hope. If you're hearing this word and it's striking your heart as an arrow, friends, that's good news. It means that the Lord is turning you. He's showing you your need for him. We just sang it. I need thee, Lord. I need you, not myself. Turn that voice of condemnation against itself. The good news of the gospel is not that if you get good enough, if you get to a place where you cannot be described by these things, then you're worthy to come to God. The good news of the gospel is that people who have fallen away, who've rejected him, he delights in giving them a new heart. So turn away from yourself and turn to him. And if you're a Christian and you find yourself sort of drifting and floating, let this be the fatherly discipline of God. So strengthen your knees, lift up your chin, and go to your father again in, con in confession, repentance, and grace. And receive all the goodness of the strengthening love of your father for you. He desires better things for us. So let's go to him for better things in the gospel. Let me pray. Lord, as we prepare to respond in song, prayer, contemplation, repentance, I imagine that there are those in this room um, who, if they are really honest with themselves, uh, feel themselves drifting, falling away. Maybe they already have. And their heart feels despair, helplessness, defeat. Lord, would you use this word to wake that person up? The conviction that they feel, Lord, let them See that as your grace to them and let them not reject the grace of your repentance. And may they turn from themselves and turn and trust to Jesus. For a person who knows himself to be a believer and they sense that their heart is getting cold, they're drifting. They've become judgmental, less interested in the things of God. Lord, use this word to draw them back. 
Lord, may we all put ourselves under the weight, the tension of this. And may Hebrews 6 be one of those Ebenezer stones in the lives of your people at Cross Point, where we know that you are with us in the middle of the river. Here we raise our Ebenezer. Here we remember that God was good to me in giving me this passage on this day to keep me from falling away, to keep me from further drift, to renew me to repentance. Lord, do that, I pray. And Lord, do this for the good of your people, for the preservation of of all of your children and for the glory of your name. And Lord, do it also for the awakening of the spiritually dead that they would see there's no hope but Christ. Do it all for your glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.